Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high-profile and under-the-radar cases from across the country every week. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. We are recording this on April 21st of 2021. I like those numbers. (laughs) There's a lot of good numbers in there. Today, we are being joined by criminal defense attorney Robert K. Corbett III, who is based in Charlotte, North Carolina, which... By the way, we're going to have a huge case out of there today. Robert was a prosecutor for approximately 10 years, ultimately specializing in homicide prosecutions. And then in 2012, Robert moved into private practice. You are a trial attorney. You handle some really tough cases. Robert, welcome to the program. Hey, well, thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to being here. Oh, we're so excited about it. We we are fascinated by your background. I love your bow ties. I wore a bow tie today in your oh, honor. Yes, <laughs> yeah, I take it as some, you know, as part of the uniform. You know, need something to allow you to stand out and people can recognize you easily. Yeah, I love it. And your partner wears bow ties too, right? Well, no, he's uh, he's more into the traditional look, but uh, he does more um, fitness. Um, bodybuilding. So we kind of call ourselves the beard and the bow tie because he has the big mountain man beard. And then you can always identify him. And then you can always pick me out by the bow tie. Ah, fabulous. We're going to talk more about your practice, um, your fabulous Instagram account that I follow. That's where I first found you. We'll talk about that later in the program. We're thrilled to have you. We really want to hear your insight. We have what I would say two really bizarre cases, the kind of cases that could both be made into movies. I don't often say that, but I think these two really fit that. So our first case, or at least one of the cases we're going to look at is a North Carolina teacher who was leading a double life, but not just any double life here. It's not like he was having an affair or something else. He was killed in a shootout while trying to rob a Mexican drug cartel member. Who does that? Yeah, it's like seemed like something like out of an episode of Breaking Bad on was that A and E or you know one of those cable stations. But it, it is like a, a bizarre case that you think is like made right for either television, some streaming service, or straight to the movies. Yeah, it's really something that we're going to talk about that. But first. Here is yet another strange case. A former NYPD officer has just pleaded guilty to an obstruction charge stemming from a murder-for-hire plot to kill to kill her estranged husband and her boyfriend's 14-year-old teenage daughter who was annoying her, okay? <laughs> so, obviously, if you cross this woman, she gets very mad and she starts allegedly hiring people. This yeah, one, that was made for, I think I saw that plot on Lifetime probably not too long ago. So maybe maybe that's where she got that's the where, idea. Yeah, got the inspiration. <laughs> Our, okay, so let's talk about the details of this case. 36-year-old Valerie Cincinnelli, who is a mother of two, was originally charged with murder for hire and obstruction of justice for allegedly trying to hire her then-boyfriend to kill her estranged husband, Isaiah Carvalho Jr. So Valerie and Isaiah were going through a very bitter divorce. You always know this is going to be part of the plot. It seems like it always is. Very bitter divorce, a custody battle. And here's the other thing. Robert, she didn't want him to get a cut of her police pension. 
Okay. Then, yeah. So that's like, there's your, your motive right there. Or the old song in terms of cheaper to keep her, just change the genders, I guess a little bit on this one, but there's a easily, or there are multiple ways that she probably could have done this. It's, you know, without resulting to try to hire someone to have them killed. I find that all the time. So many of our cases have this same theme that you don't want to divorce them because you're afraid they're either going to get too much money or they're going to get the house or they're going to get the kids or you're just mad at them. And somehow the idea of killing them makes more sense. But then you end up spending the rest of your life in prison. How does that make more sense than a divorce that's uncomfortable? Yeah. So when she went through that cost benefit analysis, obviously she chose poorly in terms of thinking that that would be the easiest or least expensive way out. Yeah. So Valerie asked her boyfriend, John Deruba, who she referred to as Sugar Daddy. That's his nickname. And that is the nickname that is in the court documents. And she asked him, please hire me a hitman because I want to kill Isaiah. Valerie said that she'd pay $7,000. Now, Here's the other thing. She wanted John. This is John, the current boyfriend. She wanted his teenage daughter dead because, according to prosecutors in court records, the teenager complained that Valerie, the girlfriend, cop, was spending too much of her father's money. I just don't understand how he went along with that part of the plan. Yeah, And, and when I hear that, though, it sort of makes me think the problem with whenever you have a conspiracy in that for prosecutors to have this information or to have details of the conversation, whenever you have more than one person involved, odds are, or statistically speaking, you know, at least from my experience, there's always going to be someone that's going to end up, you know, spilling the beans, telling the story to the police. And too many people have it in their mindset that once I tell it to this person, it's in the vault, it's never going to come out, and it always does. And just like, you know, if I tell clients of where they'll say that, hey, I may have told A, B, and C, but A, B, and C will never talk to the police. And I always say, just wait, because whenever there's more than one person, somebody always goes to the police and ends up telling them what happened. Yeah, incredibly so. And that's what happened here. John, a.k.a. Sugar Daddy, decided that he was going to rat out his honey, the cop. According to court records, that decision of his was made while he was in custody on an unrelated charge. Right. I, right? Sugar Daddy's reading the room and is like, my only way out of here is to rat out my girl. Yeah. Give them a bigger fish. Exactly. And they bit. Because you can imagine, here you are, you're, you're in a police department. And you're now telling them that your girlfriend wants to kill her ex-husband. And you're like, no, it can't be true, right? Because you'd say, this guy's just making this crap up. So as it turns out, he had text messages that he showed the authorities in real time to back up his allegations, which they then took seriously. And what ends up happening, according to court records and the prosecutor in this case, because she's now entered a plea, is that he agreed to cooperate. And then the authorities brought in the FBI and they set up a plot themselves. So you have like these, what I call two concurrent schemes going on at the same time. You have Valerie, the cop, who's planning um, eventually to try and get two people killed by hiring someone. And on this side, you have the police and the FBI who are making her believe that she's going to end up getting this, except they are playing the parts of the hitman, and they are video and audio recording all of her conversations. Yeah. And then the thing that strikes me is for her to be a law enforcement officer, or just not even a law enforcement officer, but any lay person, but definitely for a law, person, law enforcement officer, you would think she would know not to put something in writing. How often do you see things pop up in terms of on text messages, emails, what have you? And that is the crucial piece of evidence that the prosecution uses in order to try to convict. And also, how many times have we seen in the news of these murder for hire and they never find a true hitman? It's always they're talking to the FBI or talking to someone in law enforcement. And person on the street would know not to do that. But for her to be involved in law enforcement, how does she still fall under this, you know, ruse or, or what have you and not think 
that she couldn't get caught up in this. Well, don't you find most of the time with the people who try to pull these things off, there's an unbelievable amount of arrogance. They are so completely convinced that they know better than everyone, that they can con anyone, that they can control the situation. It always surprises me. I'm like, I don't, where, where would I come up with the confidence or really the insanity to say, yeah, this is a good idea. Yeah, and that's, and that's probably a good point in terms of, you know, probably most criminals think they're smarter than everyone else in the room. If they're a confidence person or a flim flam or, or what have you, and maybe her being involved in law enforcement led her to believe that she could avoid these pitfalls. But as we see, she couldn't. No, absolutely not. So these conversations began to be recorded in May of 2019 between John, Sugar Daddy, and Valerie, the cop. And John then is telling her, look, I think I'll take care of these murders and the hitman will take care of these murders over a weekend. And apparently in these recordings, Valerie said, well, that's really stupid to try and kill two people over one weekend. That's going to look suspicious. Like that's what's going to look suspicious. Mm. <laughs> like not, that's not the that problem. Yeah, you know, not that people who are some connection to her are both ending up dead in a short period of time. But then like, but what you said, it brings me back to my point of why these conversations were even getting recorded. That if you think you're smarter than everybody else, you should know that nothing needs to be in writing, done over the phone. It should be face to face. And even then, you should be super paranoid. Absolutely. Write little little notes, right? <laughs> Do something. Be very, it's just kind of like with organized crime, you know, organized, traditional organized crime, they are, the members are very, very smart and they know to always use code for everything because they know the authorities are in the van across the street listening. Right. Yeah. So I've never dealt with a mafioso case, but I've seen enough movies to know that, hey, that's probably how you need to operate and not do anything that's going to lead you to get caught. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to minimize getting mm -hmm. caught. Actually, organized crime is one of my favorite things. I, I'm, I'm not going to take a big detour here, but part of my career, I spent quite a few years in Atlantic City. You want to oh. talk about the mob? Oh my God, the cases I covered between Atlantic City and South Philly were incredible. Just like the craziest things. And then as a reporter, they would leave notes in the windshield of the news van. <laughs> I, I'm like, okay, all right. Not threatening notes, but like notes to get a message about a particular case or something. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but so. still, but they weren't going out in terms of having conversations with a co-conspirator recorded or, you know, memorize, uh, memorialized via text or notes or email. No, absolutely not. Well, Back to this weekend of murder as uh, Sugar Daddy was was planning. So Valerie suggests to him, hey, why don't you kill your daughter first? And then maybe, you know, get my husband killed a month or two later. Again, this is all documented. And then she says, why don't you try different locations? It was like, well, of course, I don't think you want them killed at the same time together. That'd be really bizarre. Isaiah, the, the strange husband, she, Valerie was concerned that his murder in particular, not look too suspicious. So she wanted it to happen in a neighborhood that maybe had more crime. She called it in these recordings, you know, this has to take place in the hood. So it would be obvious that he was most likely to be killed there. I'm just thinking to myself, oh, lady, <laughs> your, your idea of trying to make things look, you know, not as they seem, just not so clever. So then she starts getting agitated. Th this to me is unbelievable. She gets agitated with her boyfriend, Sugar Daddy, about how he's going to kill his daughter. And she actually said to him, why don't you just run her the F over? <laughs> it's like a bad movie. It's really. Yeah, well, yeah I'm sorry. When you, the thing that kind of like jumped out at me is her describing certain neighborhoods as being the hood and those neighborhoods, I guess, based on crime statistics, that's where the murder should take place. And, 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 when, I, and when I hear that, that would cause me to have some concerns in terms of how she is viewing certain areas. Did she investigate or have any dealings with these neighborhoods? If she like name them specifically, um, just in terms of what is she 
more reserved in terms of not responding to calls for services to certain areas. Just for her to put that out there, I mean, obviously she's thinking it's, you know, with the confidant or what have you, but showing her true colors, how she thinks about certain neighborhoods or communities that if I was a part of that community, that would cause me to concern and, you know, question in terms of what, if any, arrests she may have made, not even having to do with this case, but what was her involvement with those areas? Well, clearly, based on these allegations against her, this is not a woman who has any um, respect for human life or the <laughs> dignity of people and treating people fairly. You're trying to kill your ex-husband. You're trying to kill a 14-year-old girl because she annoys you. I mean, this is a person who has no regard for anyone. But I do agree with you. It is very telling about how she viewed neighborhoods and policing. Um, and it is... It's like pulling back a curtain that is very scary, especially right now, and very revealing and telling. I think right, so. Like, like I said, it may not necessarily like go anywhere, but I know there has to be in terms of either advocates or defense attorneys who are looking at what cases have I had with her. If you have an officer who's willing to go out and do this, then I think it's a viable argument to say, well, what wouldn't they have done? And, you know, those cases are kind of hard to kind of like maybe dig up and make an, an argument you can get back in court. But I certainly be trying to look if I had a case with her to say, hey, if she's willing to go out and try to have two people killed and, you know, and pay somebody to do it, then I'm questioning the veracity of any statement she may have given in a case that, that I had with her. Right. Is it possible that she framed any of the suspects that she arrested? I think it's right. a really reasonable question, which you're right. That's an avenue that many defense attorneys and people who've been convicted who take up and say, hey, wait a minute. This person is not above the law. This person's a criminal. All right. And so, yeah, so I think those would be probably if they haven't already, they're probably maybe in the works of people trying to get cases back in. Like, you know, here we refer to them as motions for appropriate relief to say, hey, this was something wrong done in this case. We have new evidence that was not known or discovered at the time. So, Judge, you need to reopen this and let's take another look at it. Do judges generally do that? Will they reopen cases when they have, you know, a, when you know that you have a criminal cop on the case? Um, it depends on, I, I would say, like what that officer is being charged with. For instance, if the like here where we're dealing in terms of, you know, some violent crime and if she made any, you know, false statements um, to law enforcement during the investigation and that comes out, I think that's certainly a, an avenue to pursue. Now, whether how successful you are, that can just kind of depend on what jurisdiction and what judge you get on a particular day. Um, yep. But it just, it kind of depends, I think, on the crime of that, that officer is accused, accused of committing. Yeah, we, we've had a lot of cases here in Los Angeles overturned when we had a very big corruption case where a lot of yet a lot of dirty cops planting things and evidence, uh, mostly with gang members. So ultimately, what, what ended up happening is that the gang members ended up getting their cases overturned and they walked um, because of what was going on. Uh, but that ultimately helped clean things up a little bit more here in L.A. Well, let's get back to this case, because here comes the moment of truth. So a lot of this is taking place on Long Island. And so the feds arrange for officers at the Nassau County Police Department to go to the next level in the setup, if you will, of Valerie the Cop. Mm -hmm. They have now set up these fake photos and they are pretending, the police are now pretending that Isaiah, her ex-husband, has actually been killed as planned. So... The setup is made to look very real where the cops come knocking on Valerie's door. They show her photos of the crime scene that he has been killed as evidence to break the news to her because after all, you know, this is her ex-husband and this is all being recorded, <laughs> being video recorded. And she apparently starts crying the crocodile tears about how upset she is. Oh, my poor ex-husband, blah, blah, blah. And um, so much drama. Yeah, because, she's, right, because she's taking the plea deal, though, Robert, we're never going to get to see or hear these videos. They would have been played in court. 
but she decided to plea and avoid trial. So we'll never get to see this drama played out. Yeah, well, it won't be played out in front of a jury, but it would, I would, it could certainly be referred to at sentencing by the prosecutor and even prosecutor could even like play it or just say in terms of, you know, to give the judge um, full synopsis of what occurred, maybe even play just briefly to say, judge, this is what we're dealing with in terms of, you know, say this is how she reacted at that moment. Everyone knew it was fake, um, you know, especially the defendant, but this is how she did in a, a further attempt to try to cover her tracks. So you're right. It wouldn't be played for a jury, which I was thinking that would be prime probably exhibit, you know, number one uh, to play for the jury right off the bat. But it gets, the information would still be able to come out in court. Yes, exactly. Because it's been in all of the court records. So um, what's also interesting is that prosecutors say they have additional recordings where she allegedly said that she wasn't worried about the murder because she would always have an alibi and she'd be sure that that alibi would cover her so she couldn't possibly be associated with it. So she seemed to think that she had it all figured out. Well, the obstruction charge is what she has pleaded to, and that is specifically for deleting phone messages and for destroying two cell phones that were used with her boyfriend as part of this scheme. So Valerie began serving as a New York City Police Department officer around 2007. Um, her attorney confirmed that she resigned in March in, anticipa in anticipation of this plea. Now, as part of this deal, she faces up to and no more than five years in prison as part of the deal. And the sentencing is going to happen on October 29th. And here's what's interesting is she's already been in jail for about a year and a half. She's been held at, you know, there was no bond for her. So that will probably be considered as time served. So it's possible, depending on what the sentence is, up to a maximum of five years, she may not spend more than another three in prison for all of this. Yeah. Now, you know, like I said, it's certainly possible that she could get credit for time served because you said it's a fairly low level um, felony charge. But I wouldn't be surprised if she doesn't serve more or even serve the max, because what you're dealing with is not just, you know, Jane John Doe, everyday citizen. It's a police officer violating public trust and a police officer knowing how the system worked and trying to subvert that in order to get away with the crime. Um, but for the FBI, I guess, getting involved, it may or could have actually turned into um, an actual you know, murder or attempted murder. And I would think that would probably be the angle that the prosecutor would go with in terms of asking why she should receive more than just credit for time served. That sounds reasonable. It really does. And I think the fact that she was a police officer yeah, she knew much better than anybody else. She's held to a different standard on this one. So one of the things the judge is considering because she's entered a plea and there will be sentencing, and I guess she's, you know, we're not sure. We don't think she'll be a, a flight risk. They're thinking of considering bail until sentencing and then have her maybe go home uh, with an ankle monitor. It's something being considered. Now, this to me, out of everything we've heard, is just the one nugget that that just is like, Ooh, this is really this. This is very suspicious. The judge who um, was hearing the plea deal and, and, and everything in court recently is not the original judge in this case because the original judge on this case was killed by a car last week in Boca Raton, Florida. Hmm. Well, that does make a, I mean, as a unique um, wrinkle in this and that I haven't seen that it is, it is probably unusual for judge who takes the plea, not be the judge who does the sentencing because the judge who takes the plea, whether the person's found guilty at trial or pleads guilty, that is the judge that knows more um, about the case. Um, so, but for that unfortunate incident happening, then that would be the same judge as sentencing. Um, but then with this occurring, although it does, in light of everything else that occurred earlier, it does probably make one, you know, scratch their head and say, wow, could she have possibly 
um, been, you know, involved in that. But in you know, absence of anything, you know, pointing to her, any credible evidence, any statements, it's just probably just mere conjecture, and it's something that would not factor into her sentencing in October or any bond hearing that may be coming forward. I mean, coming up before that date. It is possible that it's just a regular car accident and the poor judge was killed in all of this. But I am one who rarely believes in coincidence when well, it comes yeah, to crime cases. <laughs> right? I can always say like, there's no such thing as a, as a coincidence. But then like you look in terms of and what, I mean, what value um, would she possibly gain um, by being even remotely associated with it? <clears throat> Excuse me since she's already entered the guilty plea and is only waiting on sentencing. Um, unless, you know, you say, hey, that judge has made such adverse statements to her or about her case publicly. Um, but that would be one of the thing in terms of when, not if, but when it becomes a movie, then that twist will be added in. And then they would add more in terms of, aha, she must have done something, you know, had a far reach to Florida. I know. It's just even the location, Boca Raton, Florida. I'm just like, ooh, ooh, this is just too much. I can't believe this. So when I read that, I was like, this is very, just for me, it's it's my little suspicious nugget here. But we, we're, that's it. We're just like examining. We're not saying, we're not accusing, nothing. Well, nothing. Yeah, certainly, certainly not. Just suspicious. <laughs> now, back to the boyfriend, John Sugar Daddy. He the informant now, uh, did tell the New York Daily News, quote, and I always love these, these quotes. The, these are always very telling. He says, quote, after all she has done, talking about Valerie, and all the damage, I still love her and always will. And John also told the newspaper that they have matching till death tattoos. Well, I guess a, a nice, sweet little ending. I mean, hopefully that gives her some you know, solace, but she still has the felony conviction, um, still may serve additional time in jail, but it is probably like an odd statement, um, you know, to, to be made after what, you know, all occurred. Nobody would fault him to say the complete opposite. Um, right. So, you know, half probably want, you know, not wanting to have anything to do with her because of what she was trying to do. Yeah. The whole thing is, it is a very bizarre case. Very bizarre. Well, Robert, we are now moving into your neck of the woods here. We're going to North Carolina, where a popular high school teacher and coach was living a double life. Not just any double life, though. 40-year-old Barney Harris was killed in a gun battle while trying to steal money and maybe drugs from a member of the of a Mexican drug cartel. Like, yes. a school... A school teacher the most involved. bizarre thing I, I think I've, I've, ever, I've heard in a long time. Um, robbing a drug dealer probably, uh, you say, isn't the best of life choices. Um, choosing to rob a member of the cartel, uh, which you don't even think, like I said, like you mentioned, I'm in North Carolina. This occurred probably 30 miles up the road. We don't even think of the cartel being around Know, the, these parts. Uh, we're not like sleepy little town. We're not Mayberry, North Carolina, but still, uh, you don't think of the cartel having a reach this far east. Um, so maybe that's a an awake eye awakening um, for uh, a lot of people. But just the, the idea of thinking that not only am I going to deal with the cartel, but I am going to track and follow this person. Uh, with the plan, come prepared with a bulletproof vest with the plan of if this goes down, then we're going to get into a shootout with this person and then like steal the drugs and then be ready to teach class on Monday morning. Yeah, it, it just it's incredible. It's it's you wouldn't believe it unless it were true. Because it's it's it really is bizarre. I feel like this is like the 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 middle America, the middle class version of the movie Scarface with Al Pacino, right? Because here it's it's all about the drug wars and the shootouts, and here you have the high school coach yeah. who, who everybody loves and somehow yeah. is involved with this and hatches this insane plot 
that he's of all the people in the world that you're going to try and 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 steal money from this you know he's a cartel member and he had to have woken up that day and you know and had in his mind that hey this is a good idea yeah, um, right. this has a high probability of success that even once we get away and they come looking for us they're not going to go to the local high school um, my secret identity is intact uh it's it is unbelievable that he thought this was a good idea so barney taught Spanish, perhaps a skill that he picked up in this other life of his. <laughs> yes, that's right. It's important to be able to communicate. So he taught Spanish and then he coached varsity basketball and track at Union Academy Charter School in Monroe. Hmm. His body was found in a mobile home on April 8th, about two hours from Charlotte. He had a bulletproof vest on, as you said, which apparently did little to save his life. And the sheriff has quoted what occurred there right before he died as an old-style Western shootout. No, no other way to explain what happened. I mean, we're, we're talking about not just shooting back and forth inside the mobile home where he was, but bullets also were found in three other neighboring homes. So this is like, like, like Scarface, right? So... Um, someone else was killed in this shootout, 18-year-old Alonso Lara. Now, he's believed to be the drug runner. Authorities say that he was shot execution style. His hands and feet were tied, and he was shot in the back of the head. Again, it's almost as if, like, all the cues are coming from a movie on how to do this. I mean, the man uh, is the, the, the coach, right? He is a Spanish teacher at a high school. <laughs> Yeah, it's hard to believe in terms of being involved. I mean, and partly you can say that for, for, for anyone, but in terms of someone that has that type of position, someone that has that, that influence um, that, you know, you would you know, expect, you know, your kids to, to, to look up to, at least in some way in terms of how we generally view that profession or generally to view teachers and to realize or discover that this is an entirely different side that you know that community was not aware of or at least like you, you, you hope or think that the kids at that school aren't aware of it and weren't exposed to it in any way I, but that would be like a question and like i'd have in terms of you know would say at least one someone has to know or suspect or rumors going along around say hey you, you know what you know you know you know teacher down the hall is, is up to or, or whatnot and this is someone who, again, is in a position kind of like the cop in the previous case. He's in a position to protect our children. That's part of the role of being a teacher besides education and mentoring, but in, but to also keep the, the kids safe. So I, I, I mean, it is hard to believe that he could carry out these two very different lives and people not notice. This we don't know. Right. We don't know all the details and things are emerging. What's also interesting to me, Robert, is that when he was first found dead, the immediate reaction was like, oh, my God, the coach has been killed. This is horrible. And the whole community goes into mourning and statements are made. And then after the sheriff then reveals publicly the circumstances under which he was killed, everyone's like, oh, and they're taking everything back. <laughs> yeah, so, hey, we take back, you know, take back everything, every good thing we said, you know, exactly, like exactly. hours ago. But the, only, the other uh, thing with it is, and that's just, um, you know, skeptic by nature, not disputing or minimizing the tragedy of the situation or disputing that he may have been involved in illegal drug sales, controlled substances. But just the assertion that it is the, you know, a Mexican cartel that was involved in this. Um, because that just, I mean, like we said earlier, that just, that just comes out of nowhere. Um, you know, what intelligence does that agency have to lead, let them believe, hey, this was the cartel and this is what it was involved? Or are there some assumptions that have been made that we know this person um, based on records we may have gotten from the federal government, this person had ties to a cartel. Therefore, there's some making some intuitive leap that it had to have been cartel related. 
But that doesn't mm-hmm. change the fact that you still have a teacher leading a double life and those circumstances called up to him. Well, apparently, um, after the, the the police arrived at the shootout scene, which we will describe, the authorities, the sheriff's department, again, there must have been something that someone knew because the FBI is part of the current investigation, along with some of the authorities from Mexico are involved. So either this is a, a place that was under surveillance or there were known conspirators to U.S. officials. It's it's something, you're right, there's something triggered the, oh boy, this isn't just a regular old, you know, stash house in a mobile home park. No, 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 no. This is the Sinaloa drug cartel originally run by El Chapo. Okay. It's just not. <laughs> right. Yeah. And the, and the federal government, you know, doesn't, you know, comment on ongoing investigations. So is it just a, a statement that was made and now this, the local sheriff comes out and says, Hey, um, this is the, the cartel. Cause they, you know, the FBI wouldn't come out and, and confirm that. So, it, you know, so it could be, you know, so what I just said, that could be completely off base that they Don't have 100 percent, you know, assurance that who he was involved with. Or is it just some, you know, guessing and kind of filling in the gaps, you know, based on, you know, what he heard, what the sheriff heard or what he's able to glean. But, you know, still, you know, odd, suspicious or whatever adjective you can come up, you know, to to describe it. And, and maybe our victim didn't know who he was dealing with. But, you know, I know they, they were saying that he was, I think the statement was that he had been tracking them or, you know, following their, their movements. Um, so maybe he knew that they were involved in drugs, but maybe didn't know that they were part of the cartel. Because that goes back to why would you choose to do a hit or a robbery on a yes. known cartel member? That's probably more likely. I, I agree with you there, Robert. That seems to make more sense. It would be almost insane for the coach to say, I'm taking on the cartel myself, yeah. as opposed to I'm taking, you know, there's this guy and I'm going to hold him up and he's a local whatever, you know, drug dealer. and He's no big threat. I can take him. That's yeah. probably more likely the conversation he had in his head than I'm taking El Chapo's people down with me. I yeah, just unless I, he goes like, you know, this plan is so crazy, so insane. That's why it has to work because mm-hmm. no one would ever suspect that I would go after the cartel. Yes, yes, I so agree with you there. According to the Alamance County Sheriff Terry Johnson, the shootout took place at a trailer that was used as a stash house, and the gunfight spilled over into three of the neighboring homes. Okay, can you imagine the shootout? It is not just a shootout. What ends up happening is that um, during the shootout, one of the electrical boxes gets shot and destroyed. So then the electricity goes down in the mobile home park. So here, if you are just a regular person, you know, doing your thing, and all of a sudden you hear gunfire, then all the lights go out. You're like, oh, my God. (laughs) What yeah, is then, happening? Like I said, when we take it like to the, you know, back to the, the movie analogy of how this plot or storyline seems perfect for in the movie, that would have been done on purpose in terms of, hey, in the middle of the gunfight, you got to have everything go dark, shoot the electrical box that takes out the electricity, um, maybe give you some type of tactical advantage. But, you know, probably here, just maybe just dumb luck and just shooting blindly. And that's how they hit it. Yeah, I but think like, so, too. Yeah, but, you know, what I'm saying, so Alamance is a smaller county than, like, where I am. So Charlotte is Mecklenburg County. That's the largest county in North Carolina. Alamance is up the road on the on the highway. and But that's not even where this occurred. So Union County is on, important like, to my right. You know, that's, like, you know, towards, you know, more east um, going up one highway. Um, so now, which is where this the teachers from so he travels or ends up in Alamance which is going the opposite direction past Charlotte uh, and going up you know a different highway where this is occurring it appears that Barry the coach hatched this plot with his brother-in-law his wife's brother 32 year old Stephen Stewart he convinced him apparently to help him rob the drug runner 
risky plan, clearly not too smart. So here is the coach's playbook. (laughs) (laughs) To steal the money, to steal the money from the stash house. According to the Washington Post, the coach showed up at the stash house when the runner was out, the man who was killed execution style, and the coach was wearing his bulletproof vest. He had a mask, gloves, and the plan was that the coach was going to wait inside the trailer for the guy to come back and I guess say to him, where's the money? Give me the money. This is the playbook, according to authorities. Well, it was not a very solid plan because at 1 a.m. it was a full-on gunfight with the residents. They started calling 911 because of the bullets and then the electricity went out. When deputies arrived, they found the coach dead in the bedroom and they found Lara, the gun runner, was tied up but still alive. Got him to the hospital, but he ultimately died from the gunshot wounds to his head. The place had been ransacked. There was a kilo of cocaine, according to authorities, and $7,000 in cash, which makes me think all of this, all of this, over $7,000? Well, you say all of it over $7,000 or all that was left was $7,000? Um, for him to drive, Barry, our coach, to drive from Union County to Alamance County um, to do a robbery. I'm thinking, well, one, is this something he has done before, prior to his teaching career, during his teaching career, to hatch the plan with his brother-in-law? Is it that this is we're going to get $7,000? So it has to be that they're thinking it's going to be more in order to make that trip in terms of, you know, doing something that's more, you know, involves more, I mean, closer proximity um, and information that this is a stash house. So there's going to be a lot there. So, yeah, so you, so that you make, so they realize that this is all that there is to $7,000 or whoever is involved in the shootout. Are they able to clear out um, what was there before law enforcement arrived? And that's like what's left behind. Cause you still like if the place looked like it'd been ransacked. Um, so I'm thinking if you've gone through it, if it's been ransacked, then you see what's there. And if you ransack the place, you'd have seen the $7,000, but you leave it. So is it, so I think it up in terms of that's all that was there or that's all that was left. I, yeah. And I wonder if there were any other people in the trailer, because here's what doesn't make sense, Robert, and maybe you can help me. Right. So we know that the drug runner, according to authorities, is tied up. Hands are tied, feet, he's shot in the back of the head. So it's unlikely that there was a massive shootout, coach dies, and then, and then this guy gets tied up. No, that means there had to have been, you know, there's the alleged accomplice, the brother-in-law, but he wouldn't have been shooting the coach. So that means to me in my head that there had to have been at least one other person in that trailer. There had to have been, because how else could the gunfight have taken off if you had one person already tied up? This person, you can't have a shootout with the person who's tied up. Yeah, so I, I'd agree. There has to be at least one other person or, or multiple people. Um, a possible scenario is that you have Barney and or his brother-in-law, that they are the ones who have contact with the, the drug runner. Are they, you know, are they the ones who, when they are unable to find what they're looking for, or they realize that, hey, there's supposed to be more here. We wouldn't have made this trip. If that's all there was going to be here, are they the ones who tie them up and, you know, unfortunately, you know, resulted in or responsible for killing them? And in the midst of this, that's when another person or other people show up, find out what's going on, that their stash house is being hit, is being robbed, and then the gunfight ensues. Um, but yeah, so a lot of unanswered questions, which is why you probably have these different agencies all trying or, or, you know, coming to this one location in small county, North Carolina, trying to figure out what's going on. There is an additional warrant for the roommate of the man who was killed, but it's not clear whether he was there during this gun battle or he and others were there. So definitely police are looking for more people, but they haven't told us how many more people they think were involved. Now, some of this was captured on surveillance cameras, at least the cars going in and out. That's what led police to say, well, hold on a second. We got a dead coach. 
We've got a drug runner who's been killed execution style, was the coach working alone. And when they looked at the surveillance cameras and the cars, that led them to the coach's brother-in-law. <laughs> now, according to the sheriff, who's very colorful in how he says things, right. um, he says that, that when the police knocked on the brother-in-law's door, that he said he was actually relieved that it was the police and not the Mexican cartel coming to get him. Yeah, probably one of the few times before you're, you're glad that the police are showing up. If <laughs> right. you had to choose between those two alternatives, I think, you know, nine times out of ten or twice on Sunday, uh, people will pick the police option. Oh, it's just that to me is is incredible. So Stephen Stewart, the brother-in-law, has been arrested and charged with first-degree murder and possession of a firearm firearm by a felon. He is being held without bond. So the sheriff told um, ABC 11 again how relieved that he was to see the police. But I have to wonder now what kind of danger he's in because he's probably sitting in a little country jailhouse thinking, oh boy, they're looking for me, if this is true. Yeah, now that that does make uh, an interesting point. So he would be in the local jail, wouldn't be sent to prison, depending on if there were concerns about safety. So the way we, we tend to do it is that you would stay in your local jail unless the sheriff deems that they are unable to keep you safe locally, and then you're sent to a prison in North Carolina, or unless there is a um, capacity issue, or if you're being housed with co-defendants and it's a smaller county, smaller jail, and they have to keep people separate. Um, now, how large of a presence are, um, is a cartel in our local jails? Um, I wouldn't, wouldn't be able to, to say that because like I said, I'm surprised because in our everyday dealings or cases that we, we handle, that doesn't come up too often cartel relationship in our local cases. Mm -hmm. um, when we're dealing with federal cases, I tend to hear, hear that a little bit more, but for our local state cases, it's very little, um, we don't have those type of connections. Um, so being in custody, I think in general, and knowing who may be after him, I think that definitely has to cause him some concern. And then you're you're thinking of, am I safer inside versus outside? If I'm inside, then they're keeping me in a segregated area, you know, presumably, um, so that I have limited interaction. So maybe you may say that he's fine where he is um, in here, and like no, like most places that you are not given a bond for first-degree murder upon arrest anyway. And he'd have to wait until he moves to a different court, um, the way our courts are divided up, moves to a different court before having a judge or before even requesting a judge to set a bond. And even still, judge may not set a bond or may be cost prohibitive and he can't get out anyway. Mm-hmm. Now, remember I said that when this first happened, everyone, the community was in shock. They didn't know the other part of the story. They only knew the one life of the coach, the, oh my God, the coach is dead. What happened? So let's get back to him a little bit. He'd been <laughs> married for 21 years, had three children, two sons and a daughter. His wife, this is before the revelation of the shootout and what happened, the wife did make a comment and the school made a comment. Everybody was talking. Everyone was publicly mourning the loss of the coach. So I think this is very interesting. This is the coach's wife. This is what she said to TV station WTVD about being heartbroken, obviously, about the murder of her husband. Here is a clip. He did everything God wanted him to and God wanted him back home. And my heart is pure at that. It's broken, but it's pure at that. Now, I know it was a little bit hard to hear Barney's wife. So what she said is that he did everything God wanted him to do and God wanted him back home. So based on her comments at this point, and again, the authorities have not revealed at this point what Barney was doing up there, I wonder whether she knew about Barney's other life. Yeah, and I would 
hope or expect that she has been in communication with an attorney that she knows or trusts, because that's definitely an avenue that I expect law enforcement to try to go down in terms of what, if anything, does she know? We know Barney has a secret life that probably doesn't share with friends, colleagues, hopefully students. Um, we know that Barney is in communication with his wife's brother about her secret, his secret life. Um, so there's an assumption that the wife knows about it, unless you know they're saying that they're going to keep their wife slash sister away from all of this. Um, but I wouldn't expect her to be making any comments. Um, probably wise for her not to be making any additional statements um, to law enforcement um, because, you know, it always becomes that game of, hey, we're trying to solve this. You need to help us solve it. But you also have to look out for self a little bit in terms of you don't want investigation to kind of turn or focus its attention on you. And then how are you going to get wrapped up in this? Um, whether it remains state or whether her feds are getting involved. And then when you mention brother-in-law being worried about safety, uh, I guess my question is, is wife worried about her safety as well? Or, and, you know, and probably is, and probably like for good reason, if all of these assumptions that we're making about who or what is involved are true. Yeah, I think so. And after the revelation was made about what Barney was really doing and how he got killed, she has not had any public comment about that. And she may very well be a target as well. So we we don't know the answer to that. And this investigation is ongoing. Also, when Barney was first killed, the school initially put out a statement saying that the community was in mourning. The students were asked to wear their school colors to celebrate Coach Harris's life. And they also repeated his life motto, which is the motto that he always told the kids to get them going. All love, no fear. Well, I got to say, if this was Barney's, you know, rallying cry, all love, no fear, it's kind of how he ended his life. Well, you say in terms of, you say, went out guns blazing or, you know, went out and said, I have no fear in terms of who we are going after. But, you know, and like I go like back and forth um, for your brother-in-law to come to you, you know, I, I got to have the feeling of and that the feeling of that they didn't know what they were really getting themselves into mm -hmm. um, and that thinking that this was just going to be quick, go in, we grab what's there and we leave. And it appears obviously didn't go as planned because of what happened to Barney, but doesn't go as planned because of what happened with the, you know, the, the runner who came in and how, unless you think the cartel, you know, tied him up and shot him, then if that didn't happen, then you kind of like points you to Barney and brother-in-law are the ones who are, who, who are, who are doing this. Mm -hmm. um, so it's like, you know, it's a just very odd um, situation. And like, you know, back to the, the students, um, you know, kind of, kind of, kind of think in terms of how I would feel as a, as a parent, um, if that has had occurred, because like we said, someone that you trusted with the care and instruction of your child and you want your children to still have those good memories, but this is a violent, dangerous situation that could have easily spilled over, um, you know, to the school or to that other part of his life that was trying to keep separate. And once it was revealed how Barney died. Then the school put out a completely different statement in reaction to that news, which did not involve the kids wearing school colors. Uh, the school issued a new statement saying that they were, quote, shocked and devastated and left it at that, which is probably wise. And, and that's that does say a lot. What's also interesting is that when the coach was first discovered dead, the community decided to honor his life and they set up a GoFundMe account and page. But then the minute the sheriff revealed the rest of the story, the account was frozen. Yeah, that's so that will be shut down immediately. <laughs> so, because yeah, really you got to distance yourself from that if you're an administration. I mean, you, you know, parents are probably asking, like, what type of people are you bringing around our students? What type of people are you hiring? So, oh, you got to yeah. distance yourself from that. 
So it is still an active investigation. The FBI and Mexican authorities are involved. More charges are expected. Now, back to this whole cartel thing. The sheriff is where is worried that the Sinaloa cartel, once run by El Chapo, is going to retaliate. And he has publicly said that there could be a sequel. Now, it could be in various forms, this sequel. So here is a clip of the sheriff talking about this. I'm still worried about some retaliation because the Mexican cartels, they don't forget. They're going to play somebody back somewhere. He says, I'll tell you right now, sheriff, I'm still worried about retaliation. They're going to they're going to pay somebody back is the last thing he says. Yeah, that's just an odd statement for the sheriff to make, um, which, you know, kind of goes to we don't have that here. Um, and uh, they come out and say, because I don't, I don't understand in terms of what what he possibly gains from, from doing that. I mean, are you telling the you know, community, you know, um, you know, buckle up, get ready. Cartel's coming for us. Um, so we got to be looking for anybody that looks like they're, you know, cartel. So it's just this odd statement for the continuation of statements made by the sheriff just seem odd to me. Yeah. I mean, look, when these deals go bad, and go as badly as this did, probably somewhere someone will pay for it. Whether it's going to be another shootout in North Carolina, that I don't know. But my guess is, yeah, there could be some payback. There's a little bit of logic to it. It's to what degree is is the question. So it 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 certainly has been a fascinating case. There's just a little bit more insight into the coach, just a tiny bit. Um while he did seem like a regular guy, there were a few indications of trouble recently in his life. Last August, he was charged with a concealed weapons charge. Probably not too unusual, you know, given what we know now. Right. Um, and then it appears in September that there may have been a minor, a minor drug charge out of Oklahoma um, that's still being investigated. If that is true, I would have these questions. What the heck was he doing? working at a school, if something is flagging criminally for him, even if it's minor? Well, I guess it, it would depend on, he's at a charter school, so not with the North Carolina, you know, public school system. So it would depend on his contract if he had a duty to self-disclose. Um, and, and, and even so, with the gun charge, based on where we are or where where I'm saying we where I am where this mm -hmm. took place um that's not necessarily something that's going to cause a great deal of concern right in that carrying a concealed weapon um it is a low level misdemeanor um that's his only charge you can get what we call here a conditional discharge meaning that you do what I call sort of like mini probation just do what the judge orders you to do. And within a, a period of time, it gets dismissed. Um, and then it's like the other question would be, where was the gun located? For instance, did he have it in his vehicle? Um, and it wasn't in the open, but he had it in the glove compartment or under the seat. And did he notify law enforcement? And they said, hey, thanks for telling us. Um, but I still got to like issue you this citation for carrying concealed weapon. You mentioned low level drug charge out of Oklahoma. Then, you know, my question would be, well, what was that charge? Are we talking about cocaine or are we talking about marijuana? Um, and values change or are changing and laws differ in terms of what state you're in. Um, so those wouldn't necessarily cause me to look back in terms of hindsight and say, hey, these were flags that we missed. Um, these point to that dangerous lifestyle. Mm -hmm. um so but it, it was like but like i said we're talking about cocaine then you know obviously i don't um, think it was i think it was something it, and um perhaps some marijuana residue it was uh, it was un, it was a minor minor charge uh but it only you only start looking at those things when you have something as big as this and you're like well what was going on in the coach's life so this may be completely irrelevant to the bigger picture of the shootout here. We will be watching this case because I think if more arrests are made and it has a, a greater revelation of what's going on as far as the trafficking of drugs, I think that in itself will be very fascinating.
It is time for our comments section, and Owen Michael from our website is joining us now with the crime stories you all are talking about and the kind of comments that you're leaving on social media for us. Hi, Owen. Hi, Anna. Hi, Robert. How are you guys doing? Hi, Joe Fon. Owen, how are you? Good. Excellent. Uh, we've got some comments this week. As we do, we get comments across our social media platforms and on the TrueCrimeDaily.com site, and of course, we read them all. Stop by and tell us what you think. Anna, in particular, uh, loves to comment on YouTube, so uh, drop her a line there. I do. Uh, this week, we've got a California man was arrested for allegedly stealing a police car from a hospital in Arizona last week. Police said Raudel Cardenas got into a fully marked police vehicle parked outside Banner Desert Medical Center in Mesa, Arizona, which is in the Phoenix metro area. Keys were reportedly in the car. Cardenas was arrested about two miles away when an officer saw him allegedly sitting in, then exiting the vehicle. The Lake Hughes, California man reportedly told police he took the vehicle so he could go home, quotes. Uh, Kedzie H says, obviously he wasn't a good getaway driver, LOL. Jeff H says, well, if home was back to prison, he made the right choice. <laughs> and uh, Teresa A, shutting it all down here. The officer should have locked the car doors. Yeah, Indeed, I, right? To leave no. the keys... In the car, this is like a scene now out of The Hangover. <laughs> well, those two, I was thinking of those. Those two comments are the ones that popped in my mind in terms of one, he should have locked it. Um, but the, I wonder, the, it's the police officer who's going, who's going to be dumb enough to steal uh, a police officer's vehicle, and then with a person who stole it, you're thinking that that's a cry for help. You want to get caught. I mean, that's not something you're going to blend in and just drop off into the sunset. <laughs> that's right. I, I, I imagine uh, that the, the, the cops are just sort of like no one would ever dare um, try to take this vehicle. So uh, I wonder how common that is across uh, across departments across the country. Um, yes, this, without this, saying too much, we had an elected official um, in North Carolina who left his car running in the driveway and the car was stolen. I think like twice. Um uh, so just got to be careful practice. I guess, across the board with that. Well, this also comes uh, after we've got, uh, we've had several instances over the last several weeks. One uh, Florida man was arrested a couple of weeks ago after he allegedly stole an ambulance from a hospital. He mm -hmm. took it right out of the bay. There was an ambulance chase in Dallas a couple of weeks back. There was an ambulance theft by a patient in Pennsylvania. An ambulance with a pregnant woman inside was arrested, was, uh, was stolen in Oklahoma a couple of weeks ago. So not sure about this national trend, but if you are visiting a hospital now, you have one extra thing to concern yourself with, take care out there. You know, uh, there is one thing about riding in a patrol car, meaning taking one for a spin. There is a part, I think, of, I'll just speak for myself, that's like, wouldn't that kind of be fun? <laughs> you know? Well, if you could do the, the lights and sirens, yeah. then, yeah. I'm not advocating know. it. Saying, but I don't know. Get called, uh, you know, got to have some 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 fun with it. But yeah, certainly not advocating anyone go out and try to do that. Of course not. I mean, uh, I could see this uh, sort of like in the movie Superbad or something like that. If you're like a like a high school kid or something, still in the uh, making the bad choices uh, part of your life, maybe. But uh, a grown ass man, I'm not so sure. Yeah, grown ass man. Owen has the last word. <laughs> <laughs> See you guys next week. Bye, Owen. Thank you. That is our program for this week. Robert, it has been such a pleasure having you on. Um, I, I want to share with everyone that one of the, we talked about a little earlier, that one of the things that you do that I find hilarious, so entertaining, is that you do this lip syncing to movie and TV show scenes. It's just, it's hilarious. <laughs> yes. My son is a budding aspirational actor. So we sort of like did movie scenes together, sort of came up with that during height of the pandemic when everybody was just locked inside, needing things to entertain, um, entertain ourselves. And he knows more of some of the songs that are out now. I mean, I try to keep up with it because uh, I have like young kids, young clients, but he's more in tune to some of the newer artists that come out. Well, they're highly entertaining. And when I saw those on Instagram, I said to our producer, I said, oh my God, we've got to get him on the program. This is a fascinating criminal defense attorney with a sense of humor. <laughs> oh, so I got to make sure to start doing more of 
<laughs> yeah. And, and also I love the fact that you're wearing your, your gamer headset here that presumably is not yours, Robert. Yeah, it, it is not mine. And I got it from him, um, this morning. So whenever I do Zoom sessions, always where they need to have, they always say, or people ask, hey, bring headphones. So he's into gaming, like I guess a lot of teenagers are, kids his age. So he has like a couple of these and lets me use them for Zoom sessions. <laughs> I love it. It's great. It's been such a pleasure. We hope that you'll come back. Um, where can people find you? Where can they find your videos? How can they follow you and find your law firm as well? Oh, hey, certainly. Um, like I said, so my name is Rob Corbett. We are a two-attorney criminal defense firm located in Charlotte, North Carolina. We cover Charlotte as well as some of the surrounding uh, counties. We focus on violent felonies, upper-level felonies, as well as federal federal cases. Office number 704-401-5299, 704-401-5299. Website um, cmlaw-nc.com. C is in Charlotte, M is in Mecklenburg, L-A-W-N-C is in North Carolina.com. Um, Instagram, Robert K. Corbett, ESQ. I wasn't that um, creative, so I use ESQ, like probably far too many attorneys, um, but you can find that on Instagram as well. Excellent. You know, you're the first person ever to give out a phone number on our podcast. I love uh, it. Well, in the rare chance that someone's listening and happens to be in North Carolina, and on top of that, they happen to get in type, into any type of serious trouble, then, hey, they can call us. But always say, <laughs> hey, you guys will never need me. But if you know anybody who does, feel free to have them call us. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I'll be watching the podcast, you know, on YouTube while I'm being arrested. It's like, hey, I got an attorney here. I say, hey, there you go. See, that one person, let's say it all come into handy. You never know, right? You can find me at Anna G News, Anna with one N on all social media sites. As always, you can find our content on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. And of course, you can watch on YouTube, subscribe. We've got four and a half million subscribers to our channel and also subscribe to our newsletter at truecrimedaily.com. Until next week, I'm your host, Anna Garcia. And as we always say, don't do crime. <laughs>